Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I am here today with a guest who is more poet than anything else, professor, traveler, and good friend. I want to welcome Gavin Cycle to the podcast. Hi, Gavin. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. We good were just talking here. about, before we started, we were talking about how it is in Shanghai. And <laughs> I'm so happy you agreed to do this at the evening, your time, because it means I get to do it in the morning, my time, and I am a morning person. So let's talk about, tell me a little bit about where you are and what you're doing. I've been teaching at Indiana University Northwest, which is campus in Gary for IU, and I've been there five years now. I've been teaching creative writing, so I teach mainly fiction right now, which I really enjoy. I teach a, a regionally focused course in the fall, so we talk about regional writers, Midwestern writers, Indiana writers, Great Lakes writers, and then in the spring, I teach a horror writing class, so we, we discuss horror and elements of horror which students really seem to enjoy. We've done Dracula and Frankenstein and the end of the world, and, you know, those kind of topics. And this spring, it, this spring we're doing monsters. So we're reading Frankenstein. One of the points of focus is always to take the, take the novel and then reset it in Northwest Indiana. Cool. So we, when, we did Drac, when we did Dracula, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Dracula lived in West Texas and came to Northwest Indiana and was buying up houses, safe houses where his coffins were installed. That novel is really interesting because it's it's written as a series of letters and so they wanted to adapt contemporary mm -hmm. communication mm -hmm. to it. So their version was written in Facebook postings, cool. emails, those kinds of things. So so that was it was a lot of fun. But we're doing Frankenstein this this spring. Are they undergraduates or graduate students? They're almost all undergrads, although we do have a couple grad students who, you know, come into the class in the spring particularly. So advanced undergrads. So how do you teach it? How do you help? How do you help people get a sense of fiction? Um, I I've always taught it, and like with fiction, is like that. There's a kind of a basic. There's some basic tools that are craft like that you need to learn to do, to use and utilize proficiently in fiction writing. So, you know, we'll work through point of view, character development, um, basic issues in plotting, and that that kind of thing. A lot of creative writing teachers say that that's, that's completely useless in the end, that you can't teach writing. You help them find their voice and go from there. I was just reading Vivian Gornick's great book on writing nonfiction called The Situation and the Story. And she says that when she's tried to teach writing in the past, that, that you know, she's tried to focus on elements of craft. And she says that you just can't, you, it's, it's just useless to her. I've always found it to, to work pretty well that once they kind of get a handle on those basic things, they, they can tell a, tell a good story. The students who are, have they already tried doing some writing or are they kind of, this is like first attempts for a lot of them? It's first attempts for a lot of them. So they come in a little nervous about having other people read their work. So they're really hesitant sometimes. But once you see them kind of flower, it gets really interesting. One of those things that we do is have them write one page fictions, like flash fictions or micro fictions, where they have to tell a whole story in one page. And it's really interesting to see how students respond to that in the end. They come in having not read a lot. What's a good one? Oh, a good flash fiction. <laughs> there was there was one. Yeah, there was one. one uh, there was one apocalyptic one that was written about the end of the world where this guy this guy was watching TV and and it was like he realized that the world was coming to an end and so he flipped on the TV that that his neighbors seemed to have disappeared and so he flips on the TV and and he it's Channel Nine and he sees Tom Skilling's dead body Hilarious. leaned over the 
leaned over the console. I love Tom, but that's an entirely plausible story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, for I those people who don't who are listening who don't know who so. Tom Skilling is, he has been doing the weather <laughs> on like the local Channel Nine affiliate or Channel Nine station for I don't know decades. I mean, mm-hmm. half a century. He's been on yeah. for a very long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. So wow. <laughs> it was you know it's kind of like great like great telling of it was the 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 he, is that Tom Skilling's body <laughs> like. We read it in class. I always pull a handful of them out and, and we read through them in class so that they can see what their colleagues are doing. And just the whole classroom erupted. So no no offense to Tom Skilling, I hope. But no, of course not. Was, we love Tom. Okay. So, 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 you know, I don't think anybody agrees on how to teach anything. So it's not a big surprise that different different creative writing teachers probably think about doing it entirely different ways. I assume you're, you know, you're, you're adapting to the, to the students you have and what they're able to do. Get the idea that you're doing like basics, fundamentals or toolkit stuff. What else works? My colleagues have always said that one of the, the gifts that I have as a writing teacher is that I can push them out of their comfort zone so that they'll write things in my courses that, that they wouldn't have the opportunity to write in any other forum for creative writing. And I just seem to be able to get those kinds of efforts out of students. Hmm. I don't know if I, on a, on a basic level, if I teach them a lot of core things that others would teach them, but I, I kind of give them the room to explore voice and peculiarities that they know about the world. That's one of the things about IUN students that's, that's really kind of cool in teaching them is, is that they have a definite sense of the world in ways that students at other schools where I've taught don't. They have a, di- a, a distinct sense of the world. We have a great number of students who work full-time and go to school. They're baristering or they're working in factories in, in Northwest Indiana and, and coming to schools also on the side. And mm-hmm. so they just move through the world differently than a, you know someone who's 18 who just left high school and is coming to college because it seems like the next thing. Well, give me a little flavor of Northwest Indiana. I'm, uh-huh. I'm I'm curious both just in terms of that student population and about how they integrated into the writing, into the fiction. I'm curious what that looks like. I, it's the thing that's really interesting to me about teaching there and the students' focus there comes out of if you leave the campus and you go north on Broadway, the campus is right on the Broadway exit off 8094. If you go north on it, you hit 8094 and you get two choices. You can take the first ramp on I-8094, which mm-hmm. is Detroit, or you can go a little bit further on the other side and take the 8094 west to Chicago. And Gary, it always interests me that Gary seems like it's closer to somewhere in between, somewhere midway between De- Detroit <laughs> and Chicago, that you would think it's closer really? to Chicago, right? Geographically, but in terms of the ways in which students think, they have more of a Great Lakes perspective. I have a, a large number of students who have never been to Chicago. They grew up 25 miles away, but they haven't been there. And they're kind of hesitant to go to the city to some degree. So there's kind of a, there's a distance there that you wouldn't expect, or I didn't expect coming there to teach. And so they kind of have this other perspective that's, that's more kind of Great Lakes. It's not rural. They definitely have a sense that they're not, they're not part of Indiana in some ways. You know, they're much closer to Detroit. It's a really racially diverse it's very close to kind of the the national mix in terms of ethnicity. And our classes are racially mixed all the time and ethnically mixed. Students have, in terms of class, we have a you know wide mix of perspectives there. So it's it's been a great place to teach. How does poetry work into fiction writing? I'm curious how much you use the conventions or the techniques or the approaches of writing poetry to writing fiction or vice versa, or if you if they're kind of apples and oranges in terms of the classroom? I think 
two things in terms of poetry. I've always been more kind of a narrative poet, so story is important in the things that I write. And I think I kind of impart that to students. So they're thinking through story. And I think voice, too, is always important, like getting that, getting the sound of, of a regional voice on the page. So I grew up in Southern Illinois, which is interestingly kind of in between the South and Chicago in some ways. Like Cairo, Southern Illinois, or Edwardsville, Southern Illinois? <laughs> like St. Louis, Southern Illinois, or, or way down there? Like, you know, about 40 miles west of Vincent. Okay. So it's not the counties that tried to secede from the Union in the Civil War, but still very Southern in outlook and perspective. My first book of poems was exploring this, the idea of kind of growing up on the very edge of the South and what that meant in terms of the ways in which I see the world and move through the world in the end. So that story is kind of always underneath the work that mm -hmm. I do and the story that I try to tell within the poems. That first book was called Blue Mound of 1621. Well, how has that impacted your teaching or how does that impact that fiction writing? The question of, of voice is really important in that, I think, because... I mean, Gornick was talking about this in, in the situation in the story that she says, you know, you, you as a writer have, you have a, a situation that you're in, that you're trying to narrate, and you're trying to narrate the, ex the experience of being in the early 21st century in the place that you're from, and you're kind of like the circumstances in which your life is kind of set. But then there's a story that's in the middle of that, and that's the hard part of the writing is to figure out where that story where the, the, the story that the, the, the reader is going to empathize with and, and connect to in the end. How does, that, how does that situation offer you a means of understanding human experience in a way that is quite distinct from someone else? And I've always found that as like, how do you find, find the voice that speaks in the place and the time? That's why I've kind of focused on regional writing in the fall is to kind of think about, is there such a thing as a Great Lakes voice in writing? And some students take to it right away and some of them wrestle with it a lot. It's fun to see like the students who come to us from Indianapolis, how different they are in terms of the ways that they think about writing and how they get that voice on the page and how to rethink of their experiences. So the when I so when, let's talk about your poetry a little bit. So the, when I met when I first met you, I think was at one of your poetry readings for a book that you were a part of, and I think you were doing a reading at Myopic Books in Bucktown in Chicago, and it was a mm -hmm. kind of a political. It was kind of a political book, like an anti-Trump kind of political, oh, yeah. political yeah. thing, mm -hmm. and and that was the first time I heard you. But t tell me about your your poetry. So you, your uh, your first book was about um, your life in central Southern Illinois. Yeah, I was I was thinking through like I, th I, th I kind of think through um, some historical moments there. So I was thinking through some some spaces that that were like I say were kind of perched on the edge of the South in some ways. But I wanted to I wanted to think about Southern Illinois history and the kind of dislocations and the violences that were present in that in that history. So we go back to the early 20th century to moments of booze running and coal mining and the strikes that kind of defined, redefined the national life in terms of mining and how those things kind of impacted the region's sense of itself. Since since that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where that first book went. And then the second book, which is called Hostile Witness, was kind of focused on my grandfather used to drive between Chicago and Springfield to see boxing on the weekends sometimes. And so I was thinking about Route 66 as a, as a space, his I, like trying to get back into his head and what he thought about when he was driving back and forth between Chicago and in Chicago and Springfield 
with these group of Italian guys that they would come to the city with. And so what part of America is that? And then the third book was called The Bone Gatherer. And it was, I was thinking about my dad. My dad was a physician who went to the Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. And he used to travel the blue line between Cook County Hospital. Basically, that's where the medical school was and our apartment out in Oak Park. And so I was trying to get into his mind. And that was in the moments of the riots in the late 60s in Chicago, the the fire hydrant riots, and also after King's assassination. And so kind of thinking about him and how he saw the city and tried to understand the city, you know, as a healer. And then the, just the history of Cook County Hospital, which is an amazing story. Some great books on it, but you can't get all the details out of it. I'm sure. I'm sure. Wait, so you were in Southern Illinois and then you came to Oak Park or did you go from Oak Park to Southern Illinois? I was born in Decatur, born in Decatur. And then my dad finished college at Millican there and got into medical school in Chicago. We lived in Chicago and he did a residency in Springfield, Ohio for a year. And then we moved back to Southern Illinois and I was there. And Oh, so he was a country doctor. Yeah. Yeah. He's a GP. Sometimes he did, <clears throat> did uh, his practice in trade. Somebody would bring eggs or whatever. The book I'm working on now is, is touches on a lot of that kind of stuff, the country doctoring and, and how important that role was, you know, within the, within the communal sense. So how do you, how do you balance your time for teaching and your time for writing? I write very, I, I work a lot on poetry during the semester. And then the, the, the prose I write is mainly in the times after the semester's Ride is over, so I have like a month between fall and spring terms, and then during the summer, I teach during the summer too. But I can I can f- focus a little bit more time on writing at that point. So I've been trying to finish this novel for a couple years now. I got a big chunk of it done last summer. So yeah, you have long periods of kind of what periods of gestation where you're away from it. Is that what is that? Yeah, how it works, or yeah. is that intentional? Or okay, yeah, I and I, I think it helps because it gives me a little bit of distance. And you go back in as an editor of your own work and you, you, you can kind of separate yourself a little bit from it. And it's like you're reading someone else's work sometimes. Like, where did I get that from? Kind of stuff. You know? And it opens up new, new vistas in the writing as well. New places to explore. But so it, I write a lot of poetry, though, during the semester on the backs of books, on the corners of notes and things like that. that like lines occur to me or I overhear things and, and write it down. The line that's been in my head the last couple of days is, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, mm-hmm. this is this, this weird line. She said that if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. And so I think, I mean, she means it pejoratively in the sense of, you know, that you don't oh, belong. Oh, yeah, nationalism. If you really have, yeah. Right? But then there's also this, like, if you flip it on its head, kind of says some interesting things about the ways in which we are displaced. You know very well, right, in terms of your experience in China. As soon as you said it, why did I start thinking about Th- Margaret Thatcher? But <laughs> it's like weird. It's strange because it's not at all. But it's 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 very. There's no society. There's no such thing as society. The Margaret Thatcher quote. It's for some reason that's what's coming in my mind. But it's so weird. That's such an odd yeah, quote. No. She just yeah, said that? she said it was uh, wow. a couple months ago, I think. Um, I was listening to a podcast and and they, mm-hmm. somebody had quoted her there, and I, I brought it into class the other day because we're reading. Um, I'm teaching a class on literature and trauma right now. So we're talking about traumas Mm -hmm. of displacement of 9-11 and kind of thinking about, is there such a thing as a collective trauma and how do writers approach that kind of question, Um, you know, post-Trump. And uh, so so I I had brought that in. We're reading the novel by Teju Cole, 
called Open City. It's about a, a Nigerian a guy who's a psychiatrist in New York City, and he just walks the city hmm. and, you know, is kind of thinking about kind of the traumas his own life has has set up and levels of displacement of how do you come from Lagos to New York? And so he's, he's mm -hmm. always in movement kind of thing. And mm -hmm. the question is, has he dealt with the traumas of his own life or not in the end? Mm -hmm. Great novel. Mm -hmm. Really good. How, how, how do you, so this is another just kind of, I guess, technique thing. How, how do you know, how do you yourself come up with, I don't know, metaphors or how do you come up with comparisons that you think are work? How do you know they work? What, what, what at the, I guess I'm getting at the most granular level of your poetry or your writing in general. How do you find stuff that you just feel like, I don't know, or how do you produce it in the first place? And then how do you vet it and how do you decide it's great and keep it and build on it? I think that as as a writer, I've I've kind of tended to move away from image as, as a focus for okay. the way that I think through the world, and I've been trying to th hmm. I think a little bit more about voices that I overhear or I've overheard throughout my life, and try to get those voices into the poem, so I let the voices kind of speak through me onto the page, you know, sense hmm. of people's regrets, people's sense of lostness, people's sense of triumph, whatever it is. And those things kind of come out in the poem. I, I don't think as consciously about metaphoric language or, or figurative language. I'm more, I'm more in terms of, like, my question is for students always in poetry is, do you render the world better in terms of image where you kind of excite the reader's imagination? Or do you render it better if you, if you try to actually kind of like say what's there as opposed to connotative language and that poetry works on, on, on a lot of levels so well, instead of it being, how do we use denotative language, which is, is trying to name things for mm -hmm. what they really are. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the kind of stuff comes out in the poems, trying to find words, a little bit of research here and there. I, I, I love like nature stuff. So it's like, what is that gray twiggy stuff that grows up along the roadways in Northwest Indiana? What weeds are growing there now? What's invasive? What's natural? What do you call the mix of sludge and mud in some of those industrial sites you know i've been trying to figure out words for those things mm -hmm. trying to see how geologists grade those things so that those that's where my 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 interests are mm -hmm. in terms of the language mm -hmm. so so the, the number of I, have, I imagine the number of words that exist in the language has increased exponentially although i don't even know but i imagine it's super technical it's grown so I, i'm sure that's 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 a fun way to explore depth of ideas mm -hmm. i like that yeah it's super interesting yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about, like, for lack of a better word, like kind of the business of the work you're doing now. I guess your writing and the and the teaching you're doing. Are you doing online stuff? Are you doing face to face? Is it traditional classrooms? What, what? How does it work? And what works and what doesn't work? It's a mix. I generally teach two classes face to face a semester and two classes mm -hmm. online. The fiction class is always face to face, mm -hmm. and then I'm teaching a screenwriting class in the spring that's going to be face to face as well those classes work well. And then we teach, we teach other writing classes, like professional writing or business writing online, mm. some lit, lit classes online. I, I, I don't know. Have you taught online before like that? Or is, have you ever had that experience? No, I've taken classes online, but I've never taught. Do you like taking classes online? Cause I, when I ask students at IUN, I, I, they always hate them. Yeah. They hate the online classes. Some of them work better than others. The yeah. professional writing seems to work really well online. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a... They miss the... The face-to-face. -face. Yeah, the personal contact stuff. I guess I like face-to-face, -face, but I, I like... 
I actually produced more work on the online classes. Like I was, I was, this is going to sound so weird, mm-hmm. but I think I was more engaged with the online classes in the sense that mm-hmm. the professor would put out a video or a reading and then I was obliged to read what my classmates wrote and then to write. And I just was much more mm-hmm. active than when I was in a class sitting there for X period of hours per week. And most of the time listening to my classmates and maybe listening to the professor speak as opposed to just me producing. Mm-hmm. So I don't, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. A lot of times I feel like I'm just producing text and it's like I'm producing, 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 but it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't have like kind of the reflection time or the, the kind of empathy that I get from maybe a face-to-face facial gesture from a classmate or something. But in terms of mm-hmm. work and how much work I did, and actually I even, I'll even go as far to say stuff that I remember a decade later I kind of remember stuff from the online classes almost more. So I don't know. I don't, I am not, I am, I don't think we're anywhere near, from my experience, I don't think we're anywhere near comparing the two in terms of outcomes. I think they're just distinct experiences. Yeah. And I, it seems to me like that with writing, you could do a blended class, which is a mix of, you know, on online and face to face, and it would work perfectly well. But people really resist the idea of, of utilizing that as a, pedagogical tool well that's my question is what well, are, are you so the the ones you're teaching online the ones you're teaching in face-to-face i mean are you basically choosing which ones you want to teach face-to-face and which online or are they deciding it and what are the considerations like are people not on campus or are they on campus or near campus is that the issue we have fewer people on campus as a whole okay um, we have some students who take nothing but online classes right now um, and iu has its own school of online education basically that we teach through mm-hmm and then we have some of our own classes that are taught specifically for IUN students at right now, you know, that are there. Are they, I have another spring class that'll be at, it's a, it's a graduate education class in English um, in the spring where we're, you know, we're going to talk about how do you teach con- some contemporary literature, you know, in the, in the high school classroom. And that'll be all online. So it, I'll, it would be interesting to talk to you later on after that class is over to see how that's worked or not worked in some ways. So the decision to make it totally online or face-to-face is more just about practicalities. It's not like a strategy, which is the better way to do it. It's yeah. just like students aren't here. We got to do it online. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're far away in China, Shanghai or whatever. Yeah. And so, okay. Okay. So if you, so mm-hmm. if you could pick what you would, it sounds like you would in many situations kind of like a blended approach. Yeah. I think a yeah. blended approach would work really well. Students come in every couple of weeks. And I mean, I wouldn't go as far as like, Yaroslav Pelikan, who used to teach historical theology at Yale, used to, the legend was always that he would, he would hand you a, a stack of books at the beginning of the semester. And he said, go read these books right. and then come back right. and tell me about them at the end of the semester. Right. I don't right. know if I would give him that much leeway. For writing, you just have to have a little bit of time where you can just, you know, yeah. stare at your navel and think and yeah. wonder, and, you know, and dream. And it, the class structure seems to prevent that sometimes if you're too rigorous about, you got to yeah. be in class, you know, for these hours. The way I plan the classes is I, I try to give them as much time to imagine and daydream during the class sessions as possible in the writing classes. The other day we were talking about this really good novel by Scott Blackwood, who's a Texas writer called See How Small. It's about the murder of three young women in an ice cream stand wow. in Austin, Texas in the early 90s. It's a case that's totally unsolved. So it's a mm-hmm. fictional novel based on a on an actual event. And so we're trying to read it as a detective story where you never have any resolution in it. There's no one ever caught. The suspects are suspects in name only. And so that's the way he writes the book. It's more kind of like 
So how do you write a, a detective novel about an event that's not solved, as opposed to the way Law and Order gets told, you know, weekly on TV, where you have you have to have resolution yeah. at the end. <laughs> Somebody has to get nabbed, prosecuted, right? I guess. Yeah, exactly. And you could see in the in the student, you know, in students' minds working in class during that time that they were already kind of rethinking how they were imagining this novel as well as how they were imagining the story that they're working on now. So I try to leave that kind of room in the class where they can daydream a little bit, still be a part of the course, mm -hmm. and but mm -hmm. kind of plant some seeds mm -hmm. as far as imaginative possibility for where they carry the writing. What do you see as what a poet can teach a politician? <laughs> or maybe what can a poet teach a president? Hmm. I said, like Auden used to say that the, he used to say that who who do who do poets want want to read them as beautiful people who will go to bed with them and politicians who will ask them to dinner, but who reads poetry really? He says librarians, pimply faced boys who eat in cafeterias and other poets. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. That's what I loved about the the Trump project was uh -huh. that uh, Bill Allegretta, who uh was the editor who who did the series, he wrote he published a hundred books in a hundred days all addressing Trump's inauguration. So he And he mailed every book to the White House that was published. So I don't know if any yeah. of them actually got read yeah. by anyone there or if they went right into the shredder, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, but it was it was a, it was an ambitious it was, project. It was that was the guy who organized the event at Myopic Books that I was at with you. That I was at with you. Okay, it was powerful. I'll tell you that. That yeah. was for sure. Uh -huh. There was no no pulling punches. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. great. It was really strong, direct. Bill's a great poet. Outstanding at like drawing people together in those kinds of projects. Great collaborative. So if so, for young aspiring writers, for poets, what would you recommend? How valuable is getting a degree versus taking a class versus doing something on your own versus starting off? Everything from what would you recommend for an 18-year-old, you know, for a kid leaving high school versus for somebody who's a little bit older? Read everything you can, I think. I think that's the main thing. Last spring, we had a really good fiction writer on, on campus who was trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life and family wanted him to become an accountant. He definitely decided against that, but he was... He really wants to, wanted to write, and he didn't mind just kind of getting by financially for mm -hmm. some time. So I've kind of rethinking that, my own kind of past that way and all. And I think kind of the drive for an MFA has caused some problems that some writers don't ever get out and, and live before they go back. And I think that you need some of that kind of practical experience, and it changes your focus as a writer, I think. So that when you go back in, you have a different way of approaching it. I went out, did my master's work went out and worked for seven, eight years, and then went back to school and tried to, to do a more kind of focused study of writing. And I think that helped a lot in my case. Some people seem to be ready to go right away. I always counsel people, don't be afraid to go out and do some stuff, you know? And I always tell them, mm -hmm. like, students on campus now, they're like, what, what should I do? What should I do when I graduate? I say, I'd go, I go to China. If I was your age, you know, I would go someplace in the world, try something different, and then come back. You can always come back on, on one level. There's so much to see. But it's, it'll, and it'll change you as a person. It'll change you as a writer in the end. Yeah. In an abundant world, mm -hmm. uh, there's no fear of doing that because you go off and you do something adventurous and you know you're going to come back and be fine. But I feel like a lot of the, my nephews and nieces and a lot of other young people I see today, I don't know if they themselves have gotten the message or if they're getting the message from somewhere else, but I feel like they increasingly live in a world of scarcity where they're afraid to go and take yep. that 
year in Europe or that year in China or that year anywhere or even that year being a barista yep. or tr or backpacking because mm -hmm. they're going to fall behind on that path that they have to get on because yep. otherwise they're going to be impoverished and and that fear of all those fears come out and preclude them from doing the things that yep. they really are going to not ever do if they don't do them when they're younger. Yeah. And I, I think it, I mean, that's one of the things that's true with, with our students in particular IUN is we have a lot of students who are first generation college students. And so, you mm -hmm. know, their families are thinking very practically about, you know, you're going to school because you're, you know, gaining the tools and the expertise to go on and do something right away, you know, and that becomes one of the things that's difficult about keeping students in school for us too, is that how do you, talk to a you know somebody who's 20 years old who if they left school they could find a job right now in northwest indiana where they would make about forty five thousand dollars a year they go to school for four years borrow the money get through it on time and they can come out and make about fifty five thousand dollars a year on average right right it raises some important questions yeah you know and if you have a family mm -hmm. you're going to work 40 hours a week and try to keep your family together and I, I really feel for them. It's a, it's a difficult world to be in. Well, a lot of the students that we have here in China, are they're all targeting a U.S. or U.K., mostly a U.S. university experience. And a lot of them are, obviously, they're, they're enamored with the big brands for universities in the U.S., and that's where they want to go. And I find myself frequently encouraging them to go to a lesser-known regional university in the U.S. because I'm. Mm -hmm. what I increasingly see is that so many Chinese in particular students are vying for the same places that when they get there, what I'm seeing at places, and actually I saw this in a couple of campuses, including Indiana University in Bloomington, when I took my niece there back one time, I saw a dorm building filled with Chinese students and thought to myself, well, the parents are sending you here <laughs> ostensibly for some type of American or at least international or English-based mm -hmm. experience. And if you're in this little building with a bunch of other Chinese kids, you're probably not getting much of that. So on one hand, I'm encouraging them to do it because I think they'll get the experience of the, they might be in a place with maybe fewer or more diversity, kind of like it sounds like your student body mm -hmm. is. But I also feel like they're in a similar position economically. It's kind of funny. I mean, yes, the parents here have the parents who are going to planning on sending their kids to the U.S. are well off in the sense that mom or dad or grandma or grandpa had a house that was bought by the government. They paid a lot of money for. But the average salary in Shanghai, I mean, the average home, you know, is expensive, but the, even by U.S. standards, I mean, more than New York, I mean, it, prices for, for apartments and things in, in Shanghai and in Beijing and, and other large cities. But the average income in Shanghai is like $12,000 U.S. a year. Mm -hmm. So the incomes that these students are going to get after having spent $100,000 on a U.S. university, they're going to come back and they're going to get jobs. Now, maybe they're going to work for a family company and there's all kinds of things and the, there's plenty mm. of opportunities in that. But just in terms of salaries, I mean, China's still not wealthy in terms of income wealthy. On the ground, when you see this kid going, 17-year-old kid going, what am I going to do next? And then they're looking at where they're going to go in the U.S. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, a lot of them want to get into the arts and not go into the sciences where their parents are pushing them. Despite the ostensible economic growth that's happening in Asia, where there's this huge economic 7% growth as opposed to what, 1% or 2% in the U.S. every year, it's still not, there's still not this there's not a clear path where these kids are going. We talk about it in the U.S., and I know it's certainly with the demagoguery we're hearing from the presidency about how China's taking this and that from and, and building. It's it's funny. When you're here on the ground, you just see that's just not the case at all. That's the question of, like, drift. I really feel for them, you know, because it, 
it's a different world. And, you know, every class we, we discuss that whole thing of like vocation and what do you, you know, where are you going? And, and, and what the, the present generation that they're going to go through three and a half distinct career yeah. changes yeah. in their lives right now, they're, they're at that number. Well, that's the issue is that it's not that it's necessarily a bad thing, except that time is the time is kind of zero sum. And at some point, if you're putting all this time into training for your next career, when you would when maybe a generation or two generations or three generations ago, they would be putting that time into building a family or building a community or building, you know, I don't know, relationships. That's a there's you've you've you're now there's that time's coming from somewhere. And that investment of whatever it is, time or money that you're putting in for that next thing, it's it's a challenge. And some people, some people think, some people look at it and they're totally excited. It's like, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I'm going to get to reinvent myself three times or more in, in my lifetime. And others are just horrified by that idea that, oh, I'm coming back to school to do something else. So you guys do talk about that. Is that part of the conversation in class and among faculty? Yeah, absolutely. A good portion of our faculty has, has a clear sense that, that that's who our student base is, that, that we're, you know, we're working with students who are really focused on the practicalities of work and where they're going with the degree. The degree is not just a rite of passage. There's economic value to the degree. Indiana as a, I use a system and, and Indiana universities as a whole are more kind of driven in terms of trying to graduate people in four years because our state mm -hmm. funding depends on our numbers uh, in terms of how, how we get people out of school within within a six-year time frame for sure, but mm -hmm. in four or five years, there's more state funding available to the to campuses who are able to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a more kind of pressing issue in Indiana universities as well from that standpoint. So this is great, Karen. Thanks for doing this. I always end with asking people, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you? They can find me through the webpage for the English department at IUN, Indiana University Northwest in Gary. My email address is G-Cycle, C-Y-C-H-O-L-L at I-U-N dot E-D-U. Great. This was super fun. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter on the website, secondrail.com. And, and it's, you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.